här är ett poddradioprogram från Studentradion 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation Studentradion 98,9. Av upphovsrättsliga skäl är musiken förkortad. In the field of human conflict, but so much owed by so many to so few. Utrikespolitik. Det är inga pajaskonster. Det är inte hehe och hehe. Radio UF on Student Radio Nitiota Comunio. My name is Melina Froideux and I wanted to warn you, tonight's episode is going to tackle a broad and very serious topic, that is, religion. Indeed, in the wake of several religious events and celebrations, such as Ramadan or Ascension Day, our team has decided to take a look at the role religion plays in society nowadays. But wait, who's that team? Who's in the <laughs> studio? Guys, can you please introduce yourself and tell us what you're going to talk about? Uh, hi, my name is Greta, and I'm going to be talking about the values of secularism, or lack thereof. Yes, my name is Amanda. I'm looking at secularism in France in particular, and sort of how they have tried to implement that in their country. I'm Isaac here, and I'll be talking about China or something. All right, perfect. And I am Melina, and I'll be talking about secularism as well. And then I'll touch upon the current Islamist insurgency in uh, Mozambique, Cabo Delgado. Because, yeah, one point we found really interesting with religion is that they have a strong mobili mobilizing capacity for both war and peace. And that's what we call the ambivalence of the sacred. And, yeah, religious actors can be either great peace builders as as much as they can be like terrible agitators. But in any conflict, religion is almost always invoked, or at least it's always a contributing factor. And religion is often used to legitimize violence. You just heard Get High and Bite Clothes by The Rhymes on Student Radio Nitiota Comunilla. And today we are discussing religion. Because many scholars 50 years ago predicted that religion would have less and less relevance in the upcoming years and that religion seemed to be replaced by other ideologies, I wanted to explore a bit the idea of secularism. Indeed, in the 60s, 70s, Peter Bergen and other scholars believed that With modernization and globalization, the world would become more and more secular because modern humans would be confronted with a pluralism of social worlds or beliefs. So therefore, it would be impossible to maintain only one social world, namely the one dictated by religion as the principal source of meaning, and then people would become less and less religion. But this has not been a global phenomenon at all. A European trend maybe, but definitely not observed globally. And nowadays, Berger, 
says that religion still provides structure for our experiences and it seems possible that several social worlds coexist in parallel. People do not seem to be less religious nowadays. Rather, we could say that they are even more religious if they decide to stick to their beliefs while those are being challenged by other worldviews. And Samuel Huntington adds an interesting point to that. He claims that urbanization, technology, education and travel make religion more important as a source of stability and identity in a shifting social world. So, religion has not disappeared and is not close to disappearing. Okay, but now, what does secularism entail? So, the idea is that there needs to be a clear separation between a public political sphere and a private religious sphere. Religion should not be part of the state or be too close to the state, because that's dangerous. And another idea is that it's possible and important to ignore religious arguments, norms and values in the political debates. We should not integrate them. Similarly, laws and norms and policies that are based on religious arguments are unacceptable. Religious organizations should have no say or a limited voice in the public sphere, and the only acceptable arguments are those supported by scientific evidence and non-religious philosophical reasoning. But the problems with secularism, or like that ideology, are that, first of all, religion has historical importance for the present political discourse, as it affects and shapes the preconditions of that very discourse. Moreover, religion is often portrayed as opposed to democracy. But that's not the case, because democracy, if we understand it as the negotiation between competing interests, is completely compatible with different religions. And religious political parties are already part of the mainstream political discourse. And religious organizations are carrying out a lot of activities that are crucial to society, for instance, like running schools and hospitals and so on, and those activities are usually seen as public. Moreover, secularism somehow implies that people should avoid referring to their religious beliefs and values when they think about political issues. But, you know, people disagree anyway, and maybe that's even better if they can explain why things are so important to them. And if a deeply religious state is dangerous, so is a deeply anti-religious state. Religious institution can also represent important counterpowers. On top of that, they challenge individualism and stress the common good. Religion, to put in a nutshell, is uh, inherent to social life. And maybe one way to reconcile religion with public affairs is to integrate it to civil society. So the, the question should be what role religion should have and not if it should have the, a role in society. But uh, we'll get back to secularism in a minute with Greta. You just heard Paranoid Cowboy by Prince of Manhattan on Studien Radio Nitio Takomenia. And before Greta goes on with uh, the secularism topic, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Melker as well as Amanda's boyfriend. And now <laughs> the floor is yours, Greta. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's really important. We we discuss that. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, oftentimes my lecturers have preached the value of secularism, that is the separation of the church and the state. Secularism is apparently a key component of democracy as it ensures individual and state tolerance. But my home country, the United Kingdom, has a state church. And I don't think that secularism makes a country automatically more tolerant than any other country. Take France, a country which follows a policy of so-called Republican multiculturalism. According to this theory, in private, any individual can practice their religion, but in public, they must conform to French values. 
At school, this means that pupils cannot wear religious symbols. The French government claims that this laïcité protects freedom of thought, and I believe Amanda will go into this in more detail. Meanwhile, in England, even though the Anglican Church is the state church, we're very tolerant of other religions. We even have Sharia courts, and we allow pupils to carry out their daily prayers at school, regardless of their faith. My feeling, therefore, is that Britain, despite not being secular, is more tolerant than its friend across the channel. Let's look at another example. In June last year, Mississippi became the last state to remove the Confederate battle emblem from its flag. The new governor of Mississippi is looking to design a new flag, one which he says will unite the state. This new flag must include the words, in God we trust. But this isn't without controversy either, because the US is supposed to be a secular state. The US constitution was written to create a secular state. It does not once mention Christianity or Jesus Christ. In fact, the First Amendment explicitly states that Congress shall, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and bars the carrying out of religious tests for public office. George Washington's administration even signed a treaty declaring that the United States was not founded on Christianity. And yet, modern American government is littered with references to God and Christianity, from the national motto printed on every dollar bill to the Pledge of Allegiance, according to which the US is one nation under God. These references have been qualified as ceremonial deism, a theory which claims that through rote repetition, references to God have lost their religious significance. In the words of John Sopel, isn't that the same argument used by those who, who continue to demand to be able to fly the Confederate flag over the various state houses of the southern states? In other words, that their symbolic value has changed with the time. He argues that it is nonsense to claim that religious wording is only ceremonial when one considers the blood that has been spilt and the wars that have been fought over such things. What's more, one question we must ask ourselves is if the majority of people of a country describe themselves as religious, is the country still secular? Both the UK and the USA are majority Christian countries, but the US is far more vehemently so. According to Alistair Campbell, British people want their politicians to be political, not religious. In his words, we don't do God. Granted, British politics isn't free from religious biases. The Church of England does enjoy a certain privileged position vis-a-vis -vis other religions. For example, 26 Anglican bishops have the right to sit in the House of Lords, a privilege not accorded to other religious groups. I won't defend this. But the case of the so-called secular United States also faces problems with religious biases. Uh, a recent study suggests that American voters are less likely to elect an atheist than any other candidate. Will Gervais believes this is because voters see atheists as moral wildcards, capable of anything. All this spells a lack of tolerance to me. I think we have an assumption that secularism equals tolerance equals democracy. But this must be nuanced. Whilst I agree that the state should not dictate which religion a person can follow, I don't think that the absence of a state church guarantees that. When the UK, a non-secular country, ranks higher than both the US and France in democracy indices, I can't help but wonder what the real value of secularism is. Absolutely. Very interesting. Thanks a lot, Greta. And I think we shouldn't mistake secularism with anti-religion. But we'll get back to that right after the break. Studentradion. You just heard Transparent Soul by Willow and Travis Barker on Student Radio Nitiota Comunio, and we were just talking about the values of secularism. And Amanda is going to give us what the French take on religion is and how it is perceived from the outside. Yes, thank you, Melina. I'm just. <laughs> But instead of you naturally doing the French uh, take, I will just uh, <laughs> take it from you today. No, but anyways, I'm going to talk about France, their relation to secularism. I think it's often, you know, 
put forward as an example of, you know, a quite different approach to many other states. And France also gained a lot of attention, both in Europe and internationally around February, March this year, when the so-called anti-separatism bill was up for debate and also was later passed in the French Senate. And some of the things this bill includes is for instance, banning headscarves for minors in public, stricter controls of organizations, homeschooling, uh, uh, sports activities, etc. Uh, but firstly, like I said, France's relation to secularism is quite special. So I thought we needed to look a bit more at that to sort of understand why they're implementing the policies that they do. So unlike many other countries, uh, la cité or secularism is also a principle which is underlined in the French constitution. And Fr France, therefore, has a very strong focus on, uh, like Melina mentioned before, like how you separate the state from any forms of religion or religious institutions. And this has led to different forms of regulations over the years. For example, I remember very clearly already in primary school uh, in Norway where I learned that uh, in France it is illegal to wear any forms of religious symbols in public schools. And, you know, just how this is a very clear example of the kind of secularism that is promoted in France and how it sticks out from other European countries. And, you know, just by implementing such a policy, they also state that religion and education does not in any way belong together in that sense. And same thing also goes for people that are publicly employed, such as teachers, police officers, bureaucrats, and <laughs> God knows France has a lot of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> anyways, the anti-separatism bill uh, seems to just build on to these already existing um, legislation on French secularism. The parts of the bill that's gotten the most attention, at least in my newsfeed, is mostly related to banning the use of religious symbols or clothing in public for minors, as well as for parents taking parts in, for example, school trips. While some see this regulation as just another step in securing that secularism is upheld in the country. Others see it as a violation of fundamental human rights and just and others again see it as just another right wing policy targeting specific religious groups. It can be said for a fact that even if the bill is, you know, said to not explicitly target any specific religions, it will obviously affect people differently depending on what religion they belong to. As we all know today, um, different religions have very different practices regarding religious clothing and symbols. And one of them is Islam. And France actually has the largest Muslim population in Western Europe. So obviously Muslims in France will be affected by these types of legislations. And this bill has led Muslims all around the world expressing their outrage and opposition to the bill through, for example, the hashtag hands off my uh, hijab on social media. A Norwegian influencer and model called Rada was, one, was actually the one who caught my attention for this bill. And she, uh, a Muslim woman herself, underlined how this bill also has been largely underreported in international news. This I've lent I've later seen underlined by others as well. And I must admit that I did have some trouble finding English speaking sources covering this issue. 
more in depth um, apart from Al Jazeera. So yeah, no, um, anyways, I think I'm running out of time now, but at least you got a grasp of the secular project of France, <laughs> if I may call it that, and where it is headed. This case definitely raises some complicated and thought-provoking questions about the yeah very complex relation of religion and the state in modern democratic societies. Wow, beautiful you were good. Thanks a lot, Amanda, <laughs> and we will be right back. You just heard Trembling Hands by Love Trolls and Siri Gunrup Yervinen on Student Radio Nitia and this is the week single. And we are Radio UF, we are talking about secularism in religion, And we will continue the world tour with Isaac, who's going to tell us a few things about China. Yes. So starting off, China has a long history of a strange relationship with uh, religion, especially since one of the uh, first religions, as we conceive them, came to China through India with Buddhism, something that has been through the dynasties uh, patronized, or some of the emperors during the different dynasties have pledged patronage to Buddhism. But this is always, yeah, to different faiths like Buddhism, used here in the parenthesis with the caveat that it's easier for communications as we wouldn't normally describe maybe Confucianism or Taoism as a faith, but it eases or it makes things easier. But this shifting patronage didn't necessarily coincide with the, the shifting dynasties, but could change from one emperor to the next. And these shifting fortunes exemplified with Buddhism specifically depending on the time, have been considered a foreign faith or sinified. Because of this, a bountiful cache of scriptures were found in the library caves outside the city of Donghuang in western China along the Silk Road. These caves, having been sealed sometime in the 11th century to protect them from harm, which was a very real threat, especially during that time. Otherwise, the Communist Party of China is officially atheist, though this applies primarily to the 92 million members, or 15% of the population, but this has not always been so. <coughs> Specifically, during the Cultural Revolution in the 1966, China implemented an anti-religious uh, doctrine as well as anti-culturalism to reinvigorate the class struggle, root out righteous, rightist elements and cut ties with a stained bourgeois past. A huge moment then, giving the youth of China the taste of revolution and the name the infamous name Red Guards. Having left the cultural scar in the Chinese spirit as the movement after its end with the death of Mao in 1976 were recognized as detrimental and then scapegoated on the Gang of Four as the true perpetrators not to stain the reputation of Mao. This exemplified that with the, in 1978, the Article 36 of the Chinese Constitution giving the people religious freedom in this specific way, where no state organ, public organization or individual may compel citizens to believe in or not believe in any religion, nor may, the nor may they discriminate against citizens who believe in it or do not believe in any religion. The state protects normal religious activities. No one may make use of religion to engage in activities to disrupt public order impair the health of citizens or interfere with the educational system of the state. So the emphasis here is clearly on normal religious activities and also what religions are 
considered to be rightful religions in China, uh, which the party dictates, exemplified with a crackdown on the Falun Gong practitioners at the dusk of the 20th century, a practice that overnight shifted from passable to heretical. For a more recent example, we can only look to Xinjiang and the Uyghur Muslims who are also cracked down on and re-educated in the name of domestic security in a fight against terrorism. All right, thanks a lot, Isaac. I wonder what a normal religious activity in China actually means, you know, since it seems to be of such a fluid concept. But we'll be right back. And that was eavesdrop by In the Sea. But um, you're listening to Radio UF on Student Radio Niti Otakomenia. And we will continue our world tour with Mozambique this time. But after having talked about secularism and the crackdown on religion, now we will talk about religious extremism. More precisely, we will look at the current Islamist insurgency in Cabo Delgado, the northernmost province of Mozambique. Uh, there, an insurrection has, begun, has been going on in the region for more than three years, leading to the displacement of at least 700,000 people, according to UN sources. Since 2017, the Ansar al-Sunnah Islamist group, also called al-Shabaab by the locals, has been regularly attacking government properties as well as remote villages, sometimes kidna kidnapping and even beheading their inhabitants. While Inigo Torres, a senior humanitarian worker who coordinates the UN response in Mozambique, described the situation as an underreported humanitarian crisis in early March, Cabo Delgado has recently gained media coverage. On March the 24th, Al-Shabaab launched an attack on the city of Palma, near which is located a huge gas liquefaction plant belonging to the energy company Total. And according to the BBC, that industry site even represents the biggest foreign investment in the African continent. So of course it would attract, you know, the headlines. Because yeah, Cabo Delgado is a strategic region for its natural resources. Important reserves of oil, gas, as well as ruby veins have been discovered in its soil or waters. Despite all that, however, The Muslim-dominated province remains one of the poorest in Mozambique. High unemployment rates, corruption and dysfunctional public services are fueling the frustration of a population that does not see wealth trickle down. And socio-economic marginalization seems to be an important element in explaining the rise of Ansar al-Sunnah. An, an example of that could be that the group attracts the youth with promises of jobs, scholarships and a better future. And here we can draw a parallel with the emergence of Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria that was not shared by socio-economic grievances and state failure. And what I actually find very interesting about religious extremism is that it often reveals profound societal issues such as social inequalities or the fear of a decaying secular globalized world. But going back to Ansar al-Sunnah, a major challenge to fight the group lies in the fact that very little is known about it, actually. Its organization and intentions are uncertain. Even though we know its militants aim at implementing Sharia law and establishing a caliphate in the region. Similarly, the movement has pledged allegiance to the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, also known as uh, ISIS or Daesh. However, the ties between both organizations remain unclear. And the Mozambican al-Shabaab are said to have emerged in the 2000s when they were still a somewhat 
inoffensive sects of Muslims sharing a radical reading of Sunni Islam, but the root causes of their emergence aren't really clear. Another point that I found really interesting is that, according to the media, the conversation, there are also indications that some of their recruits came from other countries, including Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And transnationalism really seems to be one of the features of um, Islamic extremism. And it's really hard to map the different violent religious actors. And I guess that's why scholars often talk about constellations or the nebula to designate the different movements and their interrelations. Finally, I would say that Mozambique's colonial past, as well as the 15 years long war that followed its independence, uh, certainly played a role in what we're seeing now in Cabo Delgado. The situation is highly complex, and this was just an attempt to provide a few insights on a conflict that has been overlooked for many years. But after that very serious part, we'll uh, be back with uh, more informal discussions. You just heard Human Condition by... Okay. Sjöv Green or something. Yeah, Sjöv Green. Thanks a lot. You've got the two non-English speakers, uh, non-Swedish speakers before. Absolutely. I apologize about that. But yeah, we are Radio UF and today we're talking about religion. And something we were wondering about was, um, you know, what the future of religion it would be. Like, so... Are people going to become more religious in the future or is it a, is it going to decrease? Like what's going to happen, you know, especially with migration and so on? Because mm. specifically something we've observed with the huge migration waves, I'm guessing, is particularly looking at the Syrian migrants, Muslims coming to Sweden. And something uh, I've heard reported is how they would express that they're more religious now as a result of, I'm guessing, associating that with their home country, as well as finding a community, especially in Sweden when we seemingly fail so terribly at integration. So, of course, they have to find something else to bring them together. And if the climate crisis are to be believed, we're bound to see a lot more immigrants in the coming years, meaning then there's a risk or possibility that, uh, that more people will become even more like extreme or hold on to their views in a maybe even more torn world where mm. looking at that from a western perspective we might be even more skeptical of this increased religion mm -hmm. or increased religious activity i think I, that's a good point actually and also in american english i know they have an expression which is the squeaky wheel gets the gets the grease or something like this uh but basically if you talk loudly you will be heard and this is interesting because i think certain like slightly more extreme or um more fundamentalist religious groups uh especially in the us i'm aware of tend to get heard more get a lot more airtime and actually it turns out i found out that mormons in the us actually only make up two percent of the population but you would have the impression that it's far more. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think a lot of it will be perspective. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's very interesting. But, I, yeah, I think we should distinguish between, like, extremism and radicalism. Mm. I don't know exactly what the nuance between both are. Yeah. I'm guessing the problem generally is extremists, even if they're usually, as per definition, they're usually a small minority of a group, mm -hmm. they're very vocal. Or if they're committing atrocities, they're also very visual. Absolutely. Compared to a rest of a group, which will then force unluckily be represented by this small minority. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what I also find super interesting about extremist groups is that usually like aesthetics is part of their strategies. Like they, at least uh, the Islamic State in Syria, like really orchestrated all the attacks that they perpetrated, especially, you know, the destruction of cultural heritage sites. And it really became part of their propaganda strategy. So there is a visual element there as well. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, we'll be right back. <laughs> this song was Ali by Mustafa uh, on Student Radio Nitio Takamaniya. We're Red Radio UF, and today we talked about religion, so what the definition of secularism was, and then we gave a few examples of what it actually meant and to what extent it was beneficial or it could be harmful for society. Yeah, we broadly talked about the role of religion in the, in society and how it could either contribute to peace or fuel war as well and tensions. And we gave a few examples uh, based on different countries. Isaac explained us uh, what the relationship between the Chinese state and religion was. And then we gave a, a more recent example of a religious conflict or a conflict that was kind of triggered for um, by religious ex extremism, which is uh, Mozambique. And that's all from us for now, but we'll be back next week with an episode on Taiwan. So take care and tune in next Thursday at 6 p.m. Thank you for listening. Thank you for See listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>